Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We hear from many these days who say the news is depressing or the news just makes me mad. Well, today we're going to talk about how news consumption can affect our mental health. And we'll explore how to vet the news, how to find trustworthy news sources. There's a growing divide in what we collectively accept as facts. So what do we do about that? And how do we combat misinformation? Our discussion is titled Consuming the News Without Drowning in It. And uh, we bring in Candy Carter Olson, who is an associate professor of journalism and communication at Utah State University, joins us in studio. Uh, welcome back. Hello. How are you doing this good, morning, Tom? Good to, good to see you. Good, good. to see you. Uh, actually see you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, we also have on the phone Matthew LaPlante, uh, associate professor of journalism and communication at Utah State University. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to uh, I want to start with you, Matthew. Is this something you hear as well? That, uh, just uh, what I'm what I'm seeing, at least anecdotally among friends, I guess myself as as well. Uh, kind of a bit of retreating from the news. It's you know it's just I guess it's just so much, and and you know kind of depressing sometimes. I don't know if you're seeing that. Yeah, I yeah absolutely. I mean, I, I hear it from my students. Uh, I hear it from my friends. I even hear it from fellow journalists and uh i myself have have retreated from a a good portion of my media diet um for the for these very reasons that you're talking about um but i don't think that that's uh i don't think that that's problematic right like the idea of retreating because i think what people need to bear in mind is that our media diets have been like an all-you-can-eat buffet for uh, a couple of decades now, really since the, the dawning of the social media era. And it's only gotten uh, more volumetric. And so so this retreat is actually a uh, course correction for a lot of people that I think is, is a long time coming. Candy Carter Olson, uh, same question to you. Are you seeing this, you know, uh, among your friends, people you talk to? Um. Yeah, as as Matthew kind of alluded to, okay. So I teach media literacy to students as well, um, and as he said, you know, we we um, it, this is more of I'm going to say it's more of a boundary setting rather than a stepping back. These are people saying, "Oh, crud!" Sometimes our media actually is everywhere, and it's not just sometimes. And we've seen huge increases over the last decade in people's average um, media usage and the uh, most recent um, report from Insider Intelligent estimated that um, people spent 13.21 minutes so 13 hours and 21 minutes just in media every day so if you think about how much time you're actually awake you're basically swimming in it and people haven't realized just how much they are not just swimming they're drowning in media and media literacy has never been more important and I think people kind of woke up to that once they were seriously at a point okay we're in quarantine we're broken off from our friends we don't know how to get information so we're going to go and just soak ourselves in information sources and suddenly they realized they didn't know what they were looking at they didn't know who was giving them this information um and as a media literacy professor this made me really excited 
people started to care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's more of a boundary setting. And we're starting to see people going, oh, yeah, those tools that have been, you know, created for us out there. Maybe we should learn to use them so that we get what we want from the media consumption. Matthew LaPlante, um, I wonder if you agree there, that there's been an effect from the pandemic. I guess people had extra time in their hands and maybe binged even further on the news, and then there was an effect from that. Yeah, I, well, Candy and I seldom disagree, so this is problematic. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I very much agree with Candy. There was a uh, year there where we all went home. Many of us went home. We sat in front of our computers even more. Um, and we sat in front of our televisions even more. And the result was not just a lot of time to consume media, but also a lot of time to have some self-reflection. And I think a lot of people started thinking about self-care. They had to think about self-care. This was a traumatic experience uh, across the board for everyone. And so as people were thinking about self-care, I think it became very obvious uh, to a lot of people, um, some sooner than others, but to a lot of people, it became very obvious that this habit that we had of, as Candy said, swimming in media was not great for our mental health. Now, that's not and shouldn't be taken as saying, we should cut ourselves off from media and that would be good, right? The way to care about this effect is not to dismiss all media as bad or all news sources as bad or even all news about bad things as bad. There's, there's a big and important difference that I hope we'll get into today mm-hmm. uh, between what feels like bad news and what is bad for us news. Yeah. I want to follow up, uh, Matthew. You was, used the word care, and we care about things. Do you, I don't know, do we hit a care deficit? There's just so many things going on, and we're aware of them. We care about them. Uh, but you, you know, circle of concern, circle of influence, <laughs> to use a, you know, cubby term. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, do we reach absolutely. a deficit there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the, there has, been a well-documented effect and a well-studied effect of, you know, overconsumption of content that plays to or experiences that play into different emotions uh, have a numbing effect often on those emotions. And um, after a while, you stop remembering that what you're seeing is sad or horrific or depressing or frustrating or angering. Um, And in fact, sometimes those emotions can be Come confused in our minds when we experience too much information. For instance, if you're sitting in front of a television program with a talking head that tells you that everything in the world is bad, or in particular one side, one political side of the world is bad, and all the people in that side are bad, you stop feeling angry. You just start believing that that's the status quo, and that is that's definitely problematic. That numbing effect is. Candy Carter Olson. And I'm going to add to that. So this is a, uh, a theory that my media literacy students and I discuss every single term. And it's been studied. You guys have all probably heard about it at some point in time. Cultivation theory, but we, the subset of it is mean world theory. So on the one hand is what Matthew is seeing is that 
um, what we're saying is that people get desensitized to violence in the media, to um, sorrow in the media, to, you know, talking about a totally different story, to a picture of a child, like being washed up on shore. The um, the things that we are seeing in the media since 2001, actually, September 11th, 2001, is a drastic change in the kind of, like, news media content we'd been consuming before them in terms of, like, what we're actually seeing, blood, gore. So some people get completely desensitized by that. They're just cultivated to be desensitized. They're like, oh, yep, another person died, whatever. That It doesn't look, you know... It doesn't look real to them. It, it's just seen as a screen. Um, the other side of that is mean world syndrome. And people begin to believe that the world is worse than it actually is. And they become scared. They can't leave the house. They can't talk to other people. They basically shut down. But in a way that they're just like, mm. they are not desensitized. They're hypersensitized. Um, and so when the ongoing debate about video games and whether or not they cause violence, which I mean, by this point in time, um, you know, you can see that there, they're saying mean world syndrome, people who play video games exposed to violence all the time, they're going to go out and be violent. Not necessarily the case, but for, um, yeah, in this case, we see you either get desensitized, hypersensitized. So is it hyposensitization or hyper? Which one is causing the short? Yeah. Well, Matthew LaPont, what do you think? Um, I think it's both. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. in it can be both in I think it can be both in a singular human being too. We can be both um desensitized to certain emotions and hypersensitized to others. This is actually a, again, a very well-documented effect of, of social media where uh, algorithms control what we see and the things that uh, bring us wrath and resentment and rage are the emotions that keep people scrolling. And so those are, but those are very targeted to certain things, right? Like it's very, it's very easy for an algorithm to hone in on what will make you angry and what will keep you scrolling. And so you're both hypersensitizing someone to that sense of anger and also desensitizing them to a bunch of other conditions in their world that they um, no longer have a connection point to. So, so yeah, so it, it's both, and that is absolutely problematic. So I want to talk about what we do about this specifically. I'll start with you, Matthew. Um, if, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, if if a company, a person, uh, whatever, gets money from uh, you know increasing the the clicks, and what gets people to click is the rage and the anger and the and uh, you know the the horrible news. Uh, well, the incentives are all all wrong to change that, at least on that institutional level, right? So I guess it's up to us. It is up to us. I mean, look, we can point a finger of righteous indignation at social media companies and uh, and traditional media companies, right? There is a uh, you know a very long tradition of if it bleeds, it leads in the traditional media. Um, what I think we need to remember is that we are 
fed a diet of the things, and increasingly now, fed a diet of the things that we select to see. Um, and so we need to be a little bit more, maybe a lot more, diligent about our clicks and where our eyeballs go and how much time our eyeballs spend on these things. If you don't want to see bad news, and this is your, you, you don't want to see things that are going to make you angry, the best thing that you can do from a social media standpoint is scroll past those things and spend more time on things to make you happy. And that's, it's, it's, that's a muscle that you have to flex. That's something you have to practice. Most of us have to practice because we have a natural inclination. We have a, a, an evolutionarily programmed inclination to focus on things that feel like a potential threat that's baked into who we are as humans, who we are as a species. Um, so we have, to, we have to kind of go against that a little bit in order to uh, make the algorithms work for us. And it's the same thing in your traditional news, right? Like the best thing that human beings can do. Like you ask people in a survey, like you, you know, do you think there's too much negative news on TV? Yes. Oh, yeah. So much, so much so. But then they vote with their feet. They vote with their eyeballs. They vote with their clicks. So the best thing we can possibly do is to focus more on media that is uplifting, on media that is informative, that media that is not intended to incite, and. There's not a lack of examples of those things. You know, just for a moment longer here, let me mention, I, I wake up every day and I read my two local newspapers and the New York Times and a couple of other uh, news organizations, information from a couple of other news organizations. And today I saw articles about uh, senators from two sides of the aisle, two vastly different sides of the aisle, who are working together on legislation that they're hoping will reduce our country's uh, habit of getting into endless wars. Uh, I saw a profile of Mexican Hat, which is a small community in the Four Corners area of the state. I saw a feature on a family that's working to conserve water. I saw news in the New York Times about the FDA approval for uh, the coming full FDA approval for the COVID vaccine, a really cool examination of a new fitness trend among Olympic athletes. Uh, and I saw an article about uh, Senator Mitt Romney encouraging conservative Americans to take action to stem global warming. That's a lot of really actually useful, informative, largely positive news. But I had to choose. I, I had to choose that those were the articles, those were the pieces of news content that I was going to spend my morning with. Hmm. Wow, you're, you, you just reduced my stress right there, Matthew. Thank you. That's uh, just hearing, <laughs> hearing those, those headlines. Um, so, Candy Carter Olson, um, it isn't easy. It isn't as easy just saying you're going to do this, right? You you got to exercise those muscles. I'll give you an example: clickbait. Uh, so I know from experience, don't go there, right? Don't Tom, don't go there. Don't click on that thing, um, but <laughs> because it, but but they sometimes they make that little headline so intriguing. The, I and then I learn again. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's seventy pages, and then I didn't get anything right. Um, but sometimes I do click. So uh, how do we uh, how do we do what Matthew is suggesting we do? There is a whole heck of a lot of neuroscience behind this, guys, and um, <laughs> how there's so much research on how your brain works to look at that clickbait and go, "Whoa, that looks great. Let's go there." Because we like ice cream more than we like salads, right? Um, although I would really quite like a salad. <laughs> uh, it's the small things. Um, so 
my students and I talk about this and I make my students do there are various tests you can run to think about you know what makes a story a good story that sort of thing what makes it a valid source it's the context who's the audience it's meant for the purpose the execution and then my students have to go down go out and actually do research on some of the quote-unquote facts or claims being made in the articles and they realize it takes a whole heck of a lot of work. And I think that's a lot of what's exhausting so many news consumers right now is that work, which you guys do at National Public Radio, fact-checking live time um, as you know politicians are speaking, you have to know an immense amount of information. Or you have to know where to go and who to trust, right? So the first thing we talk about is, well, okay, source. And we start with institutional sources. And let's just say, I'm sorry, y'all, but the person walking down the street with the cell phone who records something and then posts it to the internet is not, they are recording news, but they are not actually a journalist. They haven't had the ethical trainings, the the grounding that they would get in our particular department in how to get sources, how to get a variety of viewpoints. So, I mean, thinking about that is important. Thinking about the audience is important. One of my news feeds, um, and I set up news curators, which some people don't, don't actually know what that is. So a news curator is something where you can Go to it and you can enter things that you're interested in. So I'm interested in top news of the day. So it sends me that. Um, I'm interested in disability news because my family needs that information. Um, And I'm interested in local news. So I get feeds from the Salt Lake Tribune and here in Logan, the Herald Journal and Cash Valley Daily and UPR. Okay. So it gives me that. But it also will take from the top news of the day It'll give me a scroll of headlines next to each other with my local paper, New York Times, uh, let's say Fox News, and all of these um, different sources. And I can see exactly the different range of people's reactions to this particular news source and how they're trying to get their audience to click on it. And I think that view is really important so that we can see... It's not just liberal or conservative bias here. That actually is the least interesting bias we're looking at in the media, y'all. What's more interesting? Money bias. Access bias. Okay? They need to make money. They want to to get you watching. Because if you watch, if you click, if you read, they earn money. They get advertising, right? So if you look at their headlines, you can actually see... There's a very specific audience. You know, it's not just national audience for these things. Um, we, it, my students get beaten over the head with that. It's not just a national audience. These people that they're aimed at have a specific ideology. Now, if you as a news consumer look at your news source, do you only read one a day? Do you not put them side by side at any point in time? It's possible that your news source may be just playing into your fears, your fight or flight syndrome, and asking you to click on it. And by actually getting out of that perspective, 
and seeing the full range of people, like someone in the middle, someone like trying to get a totally different audience than you and then the people getting you. I think that's kind of an interesting perspective and it'll give you good insight into what is good news, i.e. not happy news necessarily, not puppies gambling down the street, which is one of my favorite TikTok memes. Um, but yeah, it's good news. Good news is solid news. It is that salad. It gives us a variety um, and we can choose the dressings and like the croutons or the sesame seeds we want to put on there. But it's got a good, healthy base underneath it. Mm-hmm. Matthew LaPlante, uh, you, you use the phrase, I'm forgetting now, bad news versus bad news for you. I wonder if you talk about that and, and what uh, Candy Carter Olson just said about, you know, good news, good news for us and choosing new sources. Yeah, I, I think it's important not to confuse good and bad with I agree and I don't. Or even good and bad with this makes me angry and this makes me happy or vice versa, right? Like, good news is not news that makes you feel good all the time because our new our world is not a place that is great all the time. Um, but if news only makes you feel angry, if news only makes you feel depressed, if news only makes you feel frustrated, you should reevaluate your news diet because the world is also not a place that is entirely those things either. Um, Candy mentioned doing sort of a, a personal census of the news you consume and then trying to find news that is targeted toward other people as well. Um, and she mentioned this is work, right? This is actual work. It doesn't have to be work all the time. You don't have to do this every day. Um, and I don't think she was implying that. I think the, the idea here is you can periodically, and in particular, when you find yourself experiencing a uh, predominance of one set of emotion when you consume your media, that is a good time to do that. And there's a really good resources for that, too. If you go to uh, your favorite search engine and you type in uh, media bias chart, somewhere high in the search results, you're going to get the ad fonts media bias chart, which is now in its seventh version. Um, and this chart has, an, like a lot of charts, it's got an x-axis and a y-axis. And the x-axis moves from left bias to right bias. Um, and it does that from the left side to the right side of the chart, so that's convenient. And then the y-axis moves from the bottom, which is fabricated news, to the top, which is high fact news based on original reporting. And at that top middle spot, which is, I think, in most people's estimates, going to be kind of the, the idealized spot. You're going to find news organizations like the Associated Press and Reuters. A very little bit left of that, you're going to find the New York Times and the BBC. And a very little bit right to that is the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. And so if you're just sort of feeling exhausted by this or you're, just, you're still confused about this process, of evaluating your own consumption and trying to compare it to uh, news that is targeted at somebody else, and trying to find where where those like where that that happy safe spot is. This is a really good starting place for you. And I'm not saying these news organizations are necessarily a really good starting place, but if you say I value fake fact based reporting, 
here's a resource that will allow you to very quickly go and see what has been assessed as more factual and original reporting, as opposed to just facts that are regurgitated again and again and again. Um, and, and that alone is not going to solve all of your problems. And this chart itself has its own biases. I am sure. I'm positive of it. But if you're really just kind of stuck, you know you're in a rut, you know you need to get your way out, here's a good starting place. Candy Carter Olson just uh, pulled that up, showed that to me. Uh, tell us again the, the, the tool you're talking about. Um, so Okay, so what Mad- Matthew was talking about um, is from adfontesmedia.com. Um, can I give that to you to yeah. post? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and so it does have like the static media bias chart, and then you can look at the interactive. I like doing this with science and um, statistical stories with um, some of my honor students and having them think about, you know, there's a source that rates really high on um, independence, but phew, it, it, it's independent and giving you really bad news. So there, it's kind of fun to play with. And the other one that I like to have students go through, and I, I just said that, you know, um, political bias is the least interesting bias out there because it's the visible one. We all know about it. But not everybody knows about it. And if you want to double check yourself really quickly, you can go to something called allsides.com. And allsides has um, ratings of center, left, and right. So it's got that political bias rating. And it'll take a headline. And it'll run them through, all three of them. So their headline today is weekly jobless client. Well, the first one is weekly jobless claims rise to 419,000. All right. The first one is from Reuters, which is a, um, that they're putting in here, is from Reuters, which is a newswire, would ostensibly be less biased because multiple news organizations pick up Reuters stories, so they don't want to have a, um, too much of a political slant so that it can go as many audience people as, as possible. So the Reuters headline says, Wall Street set for muted open as jobless claims rise. Okay, the right source, and they have leans right and far right. So today's right source is Breitbart, and the headline is Jobless Claims Unexpectedly Jump 51,000 to 419,000. Okay, I as a reader, I'm like, whoa, what the, right? And if that's all the news I'm consuming, mm, that's going to make me scared, right? And then the, the left today is a leans left, um, and it's Bloomberg. And it says, surprise gain in jobless claims shows U.S. labor market churn. So between those four headlines, you can see a really big range of audiences being caught, i.e. what's my net being sent out um, and what they expect those audiences to want to read, to want to click on. So if one of those made you want to click more than another, Mm, because you agreed with it, not because you were like, wait, that's that's full of it. Potentially, you should look at all four of them and try to figure out, or you can just click on the topic and they'll give you dozens of new sources reporting on the exact same thing. This is a fun one to play with um, and to look at. And I like doing it um, every so often just to check my own, like, 
news sources. And we'll put those up on our website uh, here with this uh, post. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking about uh, consuming the news. Uh, consuming the news without drowning in it. And our guests are Candy Carter-Olson and Matthew LaPonte, Associate Professors of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. We're overdue for a break. We'll take that and I'll be back after this. Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan, presenting The Fantastics, the story of neighboring fathers who connive to trick their children into falling in love by pretending to feud. Details at utahfestival.org. Two menial security guards are embroiled in an unexpected family fiasco. Suppose somebody who's supposed to be near and dear to you was accused of doing some kind of terrible crime and was trying to use you as an alibi. Lobby Hero by Kenneth Lonergan. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. It was loggers versus environmentalists. Buried right up to his neck in a barricade of boulders, and that is what held off that front-end loader. Inside the Timber Wars, on the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, the program's, uh, the episode's titled uh, Consuming the News Without Drowning in It. Uh, many people uh, today say the news is depressing or it just makes me mad. And uh, some people just retreat uh, from the news. Our guests are saying, uh, don't do that, but, uh, you know, take some time to, to, to vet the news and uh, get the sources that you trust. Um, and we're talking about this with uh, Candy Carter Olson and Matthew LaPlante. They're each associate professors of journalism and communication at Utah State University. Uh, you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Matthew LaPlante, um, you were talking about, um, let me pull this up here, uh, investigating what kind of emotion you're feeling when you consume news, and then that can be an indicator uh, for you. And I suppose some, it's uh, hopefully it's a minority of uh, of the population Wants to feel that outrage, right? They're in their silo, and uh, and what they're consuming is what they want, which is the other side are idiots, and we're all right, and uh, and, and and that's a it's a nice experience for them. Um, I, I don't know what you would. <laughs> uh, that's not where I want to be, and I don't know what you think. A majority of us probably don't want to be there. Well, outrage and condescension are incredibly uh, addictive emotions, mm-hmm. and. So, yeah, I don't want to be there either. I would hope it would be a minority of people who feel that way when they're consuming their news. I'm not sure it's a small minority. Um, But here's something to think about. We have those people in our families. Almost all of us do. We have those people in our families. We have those people in our friend groups. We've watched people over the course of a number of years shift into outrage machines. Uh, 
um, who are no longer concerned about accuracy. They, they care if something aligns to their preconceived biases. Um, and if it does, then it is good. And if it doesn't, it is bad. And it doesn't matter the source, and it doesn't matter the facts, and it doesn't matter um, whether it is toxic for our environment and our relationships or not. And so, yeah, we, we, we need to start thinking about how to talk to people like that if we want to maintain relationships. Now, some people, I, I, I think it's probably healthier to break off those relationships. Um, but if your father, your beloved uncle, your mother, a brother, somebody who's meaningful to you in life also has this uh, toxin that they're uh immersed in and even spewing, um, and you want to maintain that relationship, um, I think there is a good way to start. And I think it is by choosing a mutually agreed-upon media source that you will both consume, and then your discussions can start and end with the facts that are garnered from that site. And I've, I've seen this be tremendously effective for my students when they, and it's often their fathers, and they say, I can't talk to my father. He just wants to scream about what he saw on Fox News or Newsmax. And I, I feel like I'm losing him. You know, I'm too young to lose my dad, but I feel like I'm losing him. What do I do? And so often I say, well, let's see if, let's see if he'll agree to read the Wall Street Journal with you. The Wall Street Journal is a right-of-center news organization, but it's highly fact-based. And what ends up happening is now they have this mutually agreed-upon news source. And so as long as they can stay within the boundaries of talking about that news source, when they're talking about news, they can talk about other things, they're talking about birthdays and Christmases and baseball games, whatever, right? But if they want to be able to talk about things that they both feel like matter, that they don't feel like they have a common ground to do so, it's a really good and effective tool for doing so. And you can do it with parents on the right or the left or whatever. Kenny Carter Olson, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I mean, I, I obviously agree. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen people explode lifelong relationships over because the person that they used to value and care about challenged their misinformation. And at that point in time, it's sometimes best to step back and not engage. But most of the time, I do try to engage. And I tell my students that my goal for them at the end of the class is not that they walk out of there as mini-me's, because that would be terrifying. Let's not do that. Thank you. But what I would like them to be able to do is to go out for a cup of soda, because it's Utah and we don't go out for cups of coffee here sit down with somebody with whom they wholly disagree on a topic and have an informed conversation with multiple sources from both sides. And they can get to the end of that conversation and still feel like, I respect you. I want to talk to you again. You've given me some things to think about and I may still not agree with you, but hey, high five. Let's do this again. Um, So... Yeah, a lot of this is building back the relationships that 
that 13 hours, 13 and a half hours of media at a base people spend every day has kind of tromped through. Yeah. Um, Matthew Planner, I want to talk about misinformation, how to combat misinformation. Um, I get depressed sometimes. It just seems like, we, you know, collectively as a society, we we can agree on fewer and fewer facts. It seems like there's a bigger and bigger divide as we go along. So I want to talk about about this specifically as regards uh, the pandemic and vaccinations. Um, so there's, I mean, it's pretty spectacular. You pull up a map of the United States, the lowest vaccinated uh, states, lowest vaccination rates um, pretty much correspond with the red states. Um, so there's something going on there. I wonder how, so first of all, what's the, what's the kind of the mainstream news media's role here? What, how, how, what can they do? I think the role of any media organization right now, um, is to continue pressing the gas on facts because the facts are on vaccinations are overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, and you can see this actually, you can see this in the numbers, right? So we got very quickly to high rates of vaccination um, in, uh, in bluer states. We're getting slower in redder states, but we're seeing that start to kick up right now. Why are we seeing that start to kick up right now? Well, some uh, very conservative media commentator, Sean Hannity, uh, probably being the foremost one, is literally begging viewers to go get vaccinated now, um, to talk to their doctors about vaccination. Uh, and, And why is that? Because we have been pushing the gas on facts and ultimately... Facts will win out in the long term more often than they won't. It's not going to happen every time. Um, But the fact is right now is that somewhere in the neighborhood of 97 to 98% of deaths of COVID are happening among the unvaccinated. And the more we have to deal with that fact, even if we are, have, have been reluctant in the past to accept fact-based reporting, uh, the more people are going to come to a logical conclusion about what is good for them, about what is good for their families. Um, and and I, I don't think that we should begrudge people their skepticism. You know, I don't think we should even begrudge people their denialism. Um, because being angry and condescending and mean-spirited, um, saying the sorts of things that a lot of people are saying right now, well, if they die, they deserve it, that sort of thing, that's not going to help anybody uh, latch on to facts. That's only going to uh, trigger the emotional centers of their brain. Um, and those emotional centers are the same ones that have said all along that, you know, they're, they're being attacked, they're, their ideas are being denied, they're, you know, we have to keep pumping the back. But that alone isn't enough, but it's a really, really good start. Before I get Candy Carter Olson's reaction, Matthew, you had an interesting tweet recently. I'll just read this. 
Um, so this is Matthew LaPond on his Twitter account. How my local paper reports COVID deaths. Assault Lake Man, 45 to 64. San Pete Woman, 45 to 64. San Davis Man, 65 to 84. How it should report COVID deaths. An unvaccinated Salt Lake Man. Unvaccinated San Pete uh, Woman. Unvaccinated Davis Man. You feel like that should? Uh, that's how the paper should report it? To, to me, the, the most compelling metric right now um, for COVID deaths, um, and this is, again, without judgment, right? The most compelling metric for COVID deaths right now is not where someone lives. It's not if they're male or female. And it's not even their age. We're seeing people die. There's a, another death in Utah today, a woman 25 to 40, uh, you know, by I think most people, maybe not my students' estimates, but by my estimates, that's still a very young person. Um, the most important metric is not where you're from, it's not how old you are, it's not your gender, it's were you vaccinated or not. Um, and so, yeah, I would like to see a shift in that direction. That would take both uh, pressure from media organizations um, and also a change in policy from uh, the organizations, the agencies that are reporting these deaths. But uh, it's a vital importance that people understand this right now, this fact that the majority of people dying in, by the way, incredibly horrific circumstances. Death by COVID is not a death that anyone should wish upon their worst enemy. It is slow, it is terrifying, and it is lonely. Um, and one way that we can help people avoid that is by beating the drum that right now, the sheer math tells us that if you are unvaccinated, you are far, far, far more likely to wind up in a hospital and you're far more likely to suffer from one of these tremendously horrible deaths. That's mm. just a fact, and it's a fact we should be reporting. Candy mm. Carter-Olson, um, so, so Matthew's talked about uh, sort of the mainstream uh, news outlets, some responsibility they have and things that they can do. I uh, wonder about... Um, individuals posting on social media and and by extension the social media companies themselves um what the rules ought to be there if if any president biden for example came out with a pretty strong statement recently essentially blaming covid deaths on misinformation out there on facebook you know etc mm-hmm. yeah i mean okay so Brooke Gladstone of On The Media has this wonderful quote that always strikes my students. She says, um, you know, listen up because some of this is on you, i.e. some of this is audience. It's not necessarily the news um, organizations. So, okay, think about what are you spending your money on? Okay, so... If you want to spend your money, and it's virtual at this point in time, we're just talking pretend. Let's talk about, you know, of those 13 and a half hours, let's just break it down by money. Um, you have, you know, a dollar per minute that you invested in there. Um, if you are giving up a dollar per minute to bad news sources, you might want to rethink your, uh, your investment strategy, right? Um, it is up to you to not click on the headline that is designed to trigger your fight or flight response. And again, neuroscience has shown that words do that. Words are powerful, y'all. 
Um, and you need to learn how to counter that. Media literacy is important. And it is the world that we live in now. And digital media, we don't know how to read it. Um, so I think that's really important. I think it's really important to also know, you know what? We are drowning in information. And it is impossible for any one person to know the truth all the time. And so go and look for the people who are doing this work, who are immersed in it and who know what they're doing, right? So um, I sent Tom a link to the Pointer Institute, which has the Coronavirus Fact Alliance. They have more than 100 fact checkers from around the world, fact-checking crap news, essentially, and posting it. And it's a range of ages. They, they do have some, uh, but on coronavirus, it's not the teens. The, the teens do a few. But P- Pointer is a respected nonprofit think tank that is focused on the media and teaching journalists better ways to report in context with historical grounding with a variety of sources so you know one of the things i subscribe to i'm a media professor but i i subscribe to their um daily news letters because i get to see pointers um experts saying hey Somebody in the news reported this story this way, and this is why it's good. And here's where the rest of you can go and think about doing this for your own communities. That's really insightful. Um, I, I like the Coronavirus Facts Alliance because, again, over 100 fact checkers around the world. There are people who do this for a living. It's a lot of work, right? Um, I don't have time to do all of that work. So let's see here. Today's false claim of the day. First one is holding your breath for 10 seconds is a good test to check whether you have COVID-19. Okay, uh, off the top, I'd be going, really? But apparently people believe this, and so they break down whether or not it's actually true. You can go to their database and look up things such as, you know, do vaccinations hurt fertility? No, I'm sorry, they don't. Um, And you can find that fact checking in here. Um, And you can go to MediaWise there at the Pointer Institute as well. And MediaWise actually trains people in media literacy and they put out a whole bunch of short videos you can watch. And, you know, that's important. They have them um, aimed at people over the age of 65. So senior citizens, you aren't digital media natives. Okay, here we go. They've got some for Gen Z, which is my age. And, you know, we were kind of digital um, natives, but kind of not, right? Um, They've got voter projects, which my students and I um, analyzed last fall. was kind of fun. Um, There's just some really great stuff in here. Um, So, yeah. Very good. Uh, we have about a minute and a half left, uh, so um, we need to go to Leo T and Skywatcher at the end of here. Uh, so, Matthew Laplante, what's uh, maybe give us your minute version uh, summation? What's your what's your advice to folks? Um, control your news diet. Um, examine your news diet periodically. 
don't engage with anonymous people on social media and know where your facts are coming from. And at the end of the day, uh, if you find yourself uh, feeling uh, one particular emotion very strongly every time that you consume media, that's, that's the trigger point. That's the point that you should reexamine what you're putting into your body. Well, we'll uh, end the discussion there. Uh, Candy Carter-Olson sent me several sites. We'll have those up on our website, uh, upr.org, uh, with this uh, post of this episode. Uh, so a lot of good information there, a lot of good information, of course, in this discussion. We, we thank you very much. Uh, Candy Carter-Olson, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Uh, Associate Professor of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. Matthew LaPlante has joined us on uh, the telephone. Uh, he's an Associate Professor of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Candy. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Skywatcher Leo T. here. Look up, look around, get a little lost in space. And they know where they are, but NASA has squids in space. Yep, NASA has sent dozens of baby squid from Hawaii to the International Space Station for research. Now, you know, the squid are highly intelligent and can do trigonometry like nobody's business, you know. Well, maybe, who knows, but uh, actually the baby Hawaiian bobtail squid were raised at the University of Hawaii's Kiwalo Marine Laboratory. They were blasted into space earlier this month on a SpaceX supply mission to the International Space Station. The Honolulu Star Advertiser reports Monday that researcher Jamie Foster is studying how spaceflight affects the squid, that in hopes of bolstering human health during long space missions. And naturally, I had to see if there were some squids way out in space, and well, there is. There's a, there's a new one called the Giant Squid Nebula, a couple of years old, uh, recently discovered. It's in the constellation Cepheus, which is a twinkly constellation that looks kind of like a tall cartoon house. Cepheus resides with many deep sky objects in the northeast sky next to the W of Cassiopeia. You can find some fun pictures and charts on the Skywatcher Facebook pages as well as other resources for this segment. And a little easier to find in the night sky, high in the northeast, large blue-white Vega sparkles. Candle Flame Arcturus is in the southwest and icy blue Spica is closer to the southwest near the horizon. And let's take the Skywatcher spaceship a little closer to home and take a look at Mars where JPL relays that the Mars helicopter took off on its eighth flight. Ingenuity traveled further than scientists hoped on Monday, staying aloft for 77 seconds and landing about 400 feet from its mothership, the Perseverance rover, which is doing a little bit of exploration on its own, performing some simple tricks like turning carbon dioxide into oxygen while it's up there. And speaking of space exploration, it was 45 years ago in June 1965. It was the space age when the Vietnam War was raging, the civil rights movement was in full swing, and peace and love were starting to bloom as the Beatles were recording Rubber Soul. This was the scene as NASA launched Gemini 4 via a Titan II rocket. It was the second piloted Gemini mission. The spacecraft stayed aloft for four days and astronaut Ed White performed the first spacewalk by an American. Astronaut Jim McDivitt took some spectacular photos of Ed White with the blue and white Earth behind him. Skywatcher Leo T, it's one sky, many cultures. Many eyes in the peacock's tail feathers are associated with vision and wisdom. In Greek mythology, the bird was a symbol of the goddess Hera, who kept it in her temple as a many-eyed guard. Muslims of Java believe the peacock guards the gate to paradise. In Europe, peacock mythology varies depending on the culture and may represent an omen or symbolize the soul. We hope for a good omen for the soul from the peacock.
The peacock constellation lies in the southern sky. So keep your many eyes open, look up, look around, and let's get a little lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. On Utah Public Radio, UPR, with transmitter stations statewide and streaming live. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory, where the advanced test reactor is renewed every 10 to 16 years through a core internals changeout, which keeps the nation's flagship test reactor running at optimal performance. More information is available at inl.gov forward slash ATR. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.